Last week, we discussed what is perception. Were there any uh, any problems with anything that uh, came across in, in the chapter that maybe wasn't covered well in the notes? Okay, I handed back your homework from last week, and I made a couple of minor comments um, on abductive inferences. Remember that, recall the, the argument for the resurrection of Christ. There were a number of, I only gave like four out of perhaps ten or twelve possible um, explanations that have been offered by skeptics and just just use four of them and then the fifth one which they reject uh, is that Jesus actually rose from the dead and so how do we decide between competing explanations or comp- competing hypotheses well abduction is a good way to do it it's uh inference to the best explanation and you can make that inference by showing that uh, the other explanation the other explanations are faulty in some way and also uh, when you look at all the evidence for uh, for the resurrection uh, Jesus rose from the dead is the best explanation because one uh, it covers it, it answers all of the objections and it fill, it fits all of the evidence that's given. So in that respect, um, all of the other ones come up short of what the real <laughs> what the real explanation is. It's hard to convince everybody, but people who are open, I think will be convinced. Make sense? Okay, and it's also I didn't I didn't put a plug in for this, but there's also an, there's a uh, another method, probably a couple other methods, but one that um, I'm a little more familiar with is Bayes' theorem. How many of you know about Bayes' theorem? Okay, it's it's a an attempt to be objective by putting uh, a probability. A numerical probability to a hypothesis, and it, you can take various hypotheses and assign a probability that they could be correct, another probability that they may not be correct, and take the next one, and it's just an algebraic formula. And then succeeding hypotheses are based are used based on previous hypothesis probability of a previous hypothesis. And then you can come up with uh, with which one filters through. But I'm not, we're not going to go into that. Um, it can get very complicated. But it's the math is simple. It's just algebra. Okay. <clears throat> Anything else? We'll move on to t- today's lesson, which is this coming chapter. And so this one is titled, Do We Need Justification? And so, did everybody have 
the outline, the handout. Make sure we got that. There's quite a few blanks to fill in today. And I don't want to whiz through it too fast, but... Uh, and I guess I guess I need to offer a, an apology ahead of time. When I read through the chapter and I outlined it the first time, and I had all your I had all your handouts all figured out, and I'm looking at my notes and I'm doing my PowerPoint thing here and getting everything lined up. I said, "This is going to be." really complicated. I, can I simplify this? And so I came up with a, I, I hope, you'll tell me next week whether I simplified it or whether I ruined it. There's an old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But anyway, uh, a lot of this is new to me too, okay? So I'm learning along with you. And so um, I'll show you the table I made here in a second. It's on your sheet, but um, justification is simply having reasons or evidence for one's beliefs. You probably already know that, right, from previous chapters. And you know this already, too, that uh, though you have justification for a belief is rational, it doesn't mean that it's the belief is necessarily true. Okay? So, let's take a look at this table here. In the book, in the textbook, um, there are three approaches to justification given by the bold yellow text at the headings of each of the columns. Internalism, externalism, and reformed epistemology. And the authors go through uh, these row by row. In other words, they'll take... um, Internalism, and they'll look at the basis for internalism, that is, uh, the evidential obligation for it. <clears throat> and then they'll put in some, then they'll plug in the strengths and weaknesses. Then they'll go to external, and which is the basis is no, there's no evidential obligation. <clears throat> then they skip reform until the very end. Then they go to the next row and look at the theories of structure under each of these headings, along with the strengths and weaknesses. So you end up going to internalism, then externalism, then going back to internalism, and then externalism. And I thought, maybe this would be easier, since the strengths and weaknesses are kind of scattered all around, to go column by column. So that's the way I've kind of set this up, and I hope that what I put on the screen will... Um, help you track what we're talking about. All right? So, um, in regard to Reformed epistemology, um, it's broadly uh, externalist in its structure, and it's foundational. Uh, They call it modest foundational. It's basically foundational also. And so we'll get to that one last, but we'll go column by column. All right, so we'll start off looking at internalism and its basis for justification. The basis and the structure are two different things, as, as I'll show you. Um, the basis is 
how do we how do we justify our belief under the uh, criteria of internalism and then structure is how how do we build on that and it'll become evident I think when we get to there okay so everybody get that part okay you had a couple of blanks or boxes to fill in did you get time to do that if you didn't this this table's going to come up a couple times so um, are we good okay so we're going to talk about internalism's basis for justification okay and that's I guess we could say row two row two column two <laughs> all right so a belief is not justified if good reasons or evidence cannot be given for the belief this is what internalism holds it's very strict okay a couple blanks and this doesn't necessarily mean that the belief is false if you don't have good reasons or evidence for it and the most common version of this I think this is in your textbook is called evidentialism or verificationism. And there's actually, I'm going to throw this out as a freebie, um, atheist, scientists who are atheists um, affirm that science can, can answer everything, that science can explain everything. And that's called scientism. And... Um, Actually, it can't pass its own test. As we'll see, neither can evidentialism. <clears throat> this fellow, William Clifford, W.K. Clifford, this is in your text, this quote is in there. Uh, he was a 19th century uh, mathematician, a brilliant man, uh, and, and a philosopher. <clears throat> and I don't think time's going to permit me to elaborate on how he came up with this. But you can look it up on Wikipedia. They have a pretty good biography on him and how he came to this conclusion. However, uh, it's <laughs> it's faulty. And the reason why it's faulty, anybody know? Because it's always, it's wrong always, everywhere. For anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Any idea why why it's faulty? No room for exceptions. Pardon me? No room for exceptions. Well, that that could be one, but where's the evidence for evidentialism? It fails its own test. Why should we believe in evidentialism? Okay? So it's self-stultifying, if you want a ten-cent word for it. All right. So, if at some level justification is needed for our beliefs uh, to be considered rational, then... uh, Maybe one can be rational for a different reason, right? Or to hold a belief that um, they don't even have access to reasons why they hold it. But internalists will say that that person 
is unjustified. So we have some strengths of internalism, and these are good. Internalism encourages critical thinking. And we want to be critical thinkers. We don't want to be, um, we don't want to have a critical spirit. That's altogether different, but we want to be, be critical thinkers. And then, second, internalism discourages blind faith and fideism. And I think I already, I think I put on your outline the definition of fideism. It's very similar to blind faith. Blind faith is believing without evidence, and fideism is believing without evidence and even disparaging belief uh, with evidence. What does that mean? Disparage? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, uh, what's a good word? Pastor Drew, your vocabulary is better than mine. It's to like kind of pull the rug out from under somebody and like yeah, that, say that their their claims are invalid to, to, to be critical of them. Yeah, disparaging is like um, it's a kind of a gold critical spirit. Critical spirit <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then the weaknesses. Um, of course, it as we said, it lacks uh, evidence or warrant for believing that it's correct. And then it's impractical for everyday common use. If, if you had to be a strict internalist, you'd have to stop and come up with a reason to justify everything that you believe and every decision that you make. And that's just impractical. And we know that uh, most of our beliefs are, are formed in this um, even unintentionally. And so uh, the statements, though the statements, internalism is, is, is accurate if, if we tend to adopt things without question from, without question, we adopt things from the culture without question. And we know that in this day and age, our culture is pretty far off base on stuff. So we need to be thinking critically in that respect. Um, because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right. What do Proverbs say? Proverbs 16.25 is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Alright. Okay. So we got the blanks filled in. Understand questions? Okay. I put the uh, definition of fideism there. I think it's on your sheet. Okay, now we're going to move down to structure. And we're going to look at foundationalism first and its strengths and weaknesses. So, this is the internalist theory of structure. And we're going to look at the first one, foundationalism. It takes into account that there are basic beliefs. These would be first principles. Common sense things, self-evident things, um, things that uh, we just, they're commonly believed. Okay, so these would be um, a basic belief. 
There are basic beliefs and non-basic beliefs. So accepting basic beliefs helps us to prevent um, an infinite regress. You know what I mean by an infinite regress? Okay, I got I have a belief, but I need a basis for that belief. Okay, but okay, so I can justify that belief, but then I got to justify that one, and it can just keep going. I've got a clip, I don't have it on here, of Dr. Carl Sagan, um, very popular, well-known. He's passed away now, but he was a very popular astrophysicist. He hosted the Cosmos series back in the 1980s, wrote several books, one called Cosmos. Brilliant fella, an atheist. And in one of the series, um, he says, uh, he talks about the beginning of the universe and he said, uh, some would believe that um, there had to be a God to create the universe, to start the Big Bang. And he said, uh, but that just raises the question of, okay, if God created the universe, he said, that raises the question of who created God? Well, first of all, <laughs> God's not a created being. At some point, you'd have to go back and say, okay, who created God? And then that one say, okay, well, then who created that creator? And it's just, it's nonsense. There has to be some ultimate point of explanation. We have to reach some ultimate point. And if science had to have an explanation for every explanation, you couldn't do science. Uh, so a, an explanation that is a good explanation doesn't require an explanation in order to be believed. All right, I took extra time on that, but <clears throat> this uh, I had a dandy time reproducing this little pyramid <laughs> that's in your, in your book. I just can't copy it and paste it. Uh, so it took a lot of fudgy-wudgy manipulation to get a, pieces of a triangle. So foundationalism... Uh, the Womble kids will appreciate that because their dad had a Ph.D. in structural engineering. They have a foundation upon which you build things. So these basic beliefs are where you start. This is this is a real plus for foundationalism. You have a basic, basically proper belief, and then from that you can uh, you can uh, come to a belief and say uh, theory R. Theory R may support another uh, proposition, Q, which may support another one, P, and so on. It's, but these have a, um, they have a, they have a uh, structured support. And that's, that's one strong advantage of foundationalism. So, it recognizes that basic beliefs are first principles, <clears throat> or things that are self-justifying or deeply rooted in common knowledge. And it has weakness that <clears throat> it only recognizes deductive type inferences, and that's to the exclusion of inductive, and and that should have been abductive. The spell checker just refuses to spell that word because it's not in the dictionary. But you know what I mean, okay? Abductive inferences. 
That's its weakness. It only <clears throat> it only recognizes that one certain type of inference. <clears throat> and we go to our chart. We're going to move down one to coherentism. This should be a familiar word because <clears throat> we studied it previously under uh, definition of truth. Remember. So in this case, though, as a uh, element of structure on which to base internalism, it has it has some problems. So as a theory of structure, it holds that uh, if a person's uh, beliefs are consistent, then it can be said that that person is justified in holding that belief. Well, we looked at that before. What's wrong with that? All your beliefs can be wrong. I mean, if a belief is wrong, it's not other beliefs that are wrong. Sure. Remember the the idea of of a of a movie that was consistent, right? All the the plot and the characters, everybody acted consistently, but yet the story isn't true. It was it was fictional. That's right. Okay. So there really isn't. There really isn't a strength to it other than it's a test. It's a, it's a valid test for a true proposition or a true conclusion. Okay? But that's not part of the structure. That's in another, that's another, um, a whole other area. Okay? So it's weakness, and there are several. Because it lacks the foundation of a, of a basic belief, it appears to be circular. Anybody know what a circular argument is or the informal fallacy of circular reasoning? Is that familiar to anybody? Okay, we're going to have a little fun with that one in a minute. <clears throat> okay, and it also, the other weakness is it isolates a person's belief from the external world. Uh, if you take it really uh, strictly, <laughs> you could say that reality doesn't matter. Uh, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. And then it allows the possibility that two coherent systems uh, might be held to be true, but they're incompatible. They contradict one another. So that puts it totally in the subjective category, which is not what we're looking for. Right? Okay, so what's meant by circular reasoning? Well, of course, I had to put a spin on that one, right? It's an informal reasoning fallacy that presupposes the conclusion somewhere in the statement of the premises. So, we look at this circle. Start with A. If A, then Q. If Q, then R. If R, then S. If S, then T. If T, then P. Or you can start anywhere. It just reasons in a circle. So I'm going to give you one here. This is all too common. How do you know the Bible's true? Because the Bible says so. Circular reasoning. Okay? Now, 
got another illustration here. I forget what cartoon this is, but the guy says, What's this? It's a compass, silly. You can find out where you are by using a compass. Well, then where are we? Hmm. Yeah, right here, next to the compass. <laughs> I've been saving this for years. To do this. <laughs> yeah, so that's the problem with circular reasoning. And that's why I have a hard time with presuppositional apologetics. <clears throat> Everyone who holds to classical or evidential apologetics tries to point that out to folks, but okay. We'll move on. Let's go back to our chart. Now we're going to move over a column to externalism, and we're going to look at the basis of externalism. Remember before, internalism, you were obligated to accept the evidence as a basis of your justification. In externalism, that's not the case. So, Many beliefs can't be justified according to the internalist standard. And we, we know that. So, some beliefs um, just don't require justification to be considered rational, such as memory. One more. And a person holding a belief can be justified in holding that belief even though they don't have immediate access to the reason for believing it. You think a person believes in God and they can't recall, why do I believe in God? Well, I, I do. It's, it's, it's intuitive to believe in God. It's and we'll see in a second. Uh, we get down to uh, Reformed epistemology that uh, it, it's born in a person to believe. You have to be taught not to believe in God. Okay, so externalism strengths is that it not only recognizes uh, that the senses give reliable information about the world outside the mind, But it also relieves the person of the, uh, the the burden of having to analyze and provide justification for everything that you believe. Unlike internalism. Okay, I see pencils still moving. Okay. Make sense? Now, let me say this, that even though we don't have, we don't have the, the burden to analyze and provide justification for what, we, for what we believe, we should be prepared to modify or abandon um, our belief in the face of strong evidence to the contrary. I mean, after all, we as Christians, uh, we often appeal 
to evidence to the unbeliever for uh, the existence of God, to um, to the resurrection, the facts of the resurrection of Christ, and we give we can give warrant for that to unbelievers. Um, some of you know who Dr. Frank Turek is, and he uh, he says he always asks a non-believer. He said, "If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian?" And the answers he gets are sometimes pretty alarming. A person who is an atheist and claims to, I believe in science and I believe in evidence and I believe in reason. Okay, well, how about this test? If Christianity were true, hypothetically, if it were true, would you become a Christian? No. <laughs> that's, that's unreasonable. It's irrational. Alright, so... Uh, so we've looked at the strengths, and there are a couple of weaknesses. The externalists may ignore the important obligation and responsibility to have a good reason for making his truth claims. Anybody have a Bible verse for that? Externalist kind of just leans on the uh, rests on the no the no need um, basis for his justification. I don't need to give a reason. You can be accused. We can be accused of intellectual laziness. Second Timothy two fifteen. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. I know that one from Awana. If you were in Awana. Okay. How are we doing? We might make it. Alright, so let's look at the table again. Move down a row to uh, two theories of structure under externalism. The causal theory and reliabilism. Reliabilism sounds like a word you might read in a advertisement about a about a car or something. <laughs> reliabilism. <laughs> All right. So these theories of existentialist theories of structure, causal theory, holds that a justified belief is based on an external connection with something outside the mind that causes the belief. So, I mean, some causes of, of uh, for a belief are, are obvious, right? I mean, they can be directly detected. You'd be you'd be justified in a belief if you were to if you were in a room and we're in a room here and all of a sudden the lights go out. Um, you'd be justified to believe that the power went out. And if 
the TV went off and other things, uh, you'd have further justification for it. And that's a that's a uh, an example of a of a direct cause that can be related to something that's external. You didn't just dream up that the power went out. But uh, we might hold a belief, though, that's misappropriated. Say that uh, you get in your car, you turn the key, nothing happens. So you say, hmm, battery must be dead. Well, get out there and you jump the battery, buy a new battery, find out it's not what's wrong. The ignition key is defective. So we can have misappropriated uh, cause to a particular effect. So we can make a mistake in that way. So there are uh, weaknesses to everything and cause of theory, as we've said, may be incorrect because the cause is misappropriated or the cause is complex. Ask anybody that uh, troubleshoots uh, machinery or electronics for a living. It's almost never one simple little thing. It's quite often a couple of things. Maybe one thing went out. I used to repair, a long time ago as an electronics technician, I used to repair electronic uh, color TVs and stereos and that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> you could... I could have been bald a lot earlier. I guess bald here out trying to fix fix these things, but um, a lot of times, uh, how in the world did this and that go out at the same time? They're not even in the same circuit. It just it just can be uh, very complicated. All right, so uh, there's one other element to the structural theory, and that's reliabilism. And it holds a, that a person should be considered rational uh, for their beliefs, beliefs that are that rely on memory or sense input, as we saw, or other simple cognitive uh, processes regarding just objects and things that external to the mind, and that's provisional that a person's not. Uh, disabled in, in some way or another. Um, I I have a younger brother that's autistic and he has other cognitive disabilities. So, uh, of course, he's nonverbal, so it wouldn't probably apply to him. But uh, other people who are not as severely affected as he is may have uh, difficulty obtaining a uh, justified belief on some cause that they that they suppose, but most of us folk, uh, without those difficulties, uh, not under the influence of drugs or some disability, uh, we can we can uh, rely on a justified belief that's uh, based on our memory or our sense input. Okay. Now, we get to move over to the last column. Reformed epistemology. Did y'all get the... Were there any uh, blanks here you had to fill in? No. Okay. I'm trying not to overload. 
wear out your pen or anybody run out of ink or something. <clears throat> okay, what is what is Reformed epistemology? Well, uh, it's related to, uh, you know, you've heard of the Reformation, the Great Reformation, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, from these uh, great heroes of the faith who stood against uh, Romanism, had a, uh, a theology, a systematic theology that followed from, from them. And there are many today, we are not reformed in this church, but we have uh, brothers, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ who are reformed. And they follow uh, much more closely those teachings of Luther and Calvin and, and contemporary writers along that, along that line. And so this stems from uh, those folks, but it's more of a recent term. In fact, it, it, it is a recent term. <clears throat> there is a, uh, a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. He's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy from Notre Dame University. He is a Christian, and I believe he's a Reformed Christian. <laughs> a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, written many, many books on, uh, on Christian philosophy. And so, uh, there are three elements of this from the table there is modest foundationalism. Remember the arrow that pointed up over to foundationalism, which is uh, it's, it's like classical foundation is what we talked about before, where you've got a basic a basic belief, and then you build these other beliefs, non-basic beliefs on it. So it's like that, but it's not as narrow in that it requires only deductive reasoning to establish a basic belief. It allows inductive and abductive reasoning as well. And then, the part I like about it, we mentioned, I mentioned this earlier on. It allows belief in God as a basic belief. It is a proper basic belief. Reformed scholars refer to this as the sensus divinitatis, which means a sense of the divine or a sense of God, that this is born in a person. And having that, we have sufficient warrant that our belief in God is rational. And, I don't know, every, every Christian philosopher I know of supports this, this argument. And, and I think it's a good one. You can, uh, if you want evidence for it, there isn't, there isn't a, a, an atheist that I know of, I don't think there's an atheist indigenous population anywhere. You find some belief in a supernatural creator. It may be creators, but you find that everywhere and everywhere in history. And I've been, I've been among some very primitive people in South America a number of times. 
And they practice what's known as animism. They believe that everything has a spirit. This has a spirit. The rock has a spirit. The grass has a spirit. Um, Okay, I got the uh, just two blanks there to fill in. Okay, second feature is warrant, and that's similar to justification in that uh, it's a quality that a belief has to have, but it's different in three ways here. It differentiates knowledge from true opinion, and it comes in degrees. It's not an all or nothing matter. So we can have degrees of warrant, which is very helpful. And that's, that's where the uh, inductive and abductive reasoning comes in. If it was just deductive, then it would have to be an all or nothing type of justification. And then it focuses more on the rationality for belief than a duty to believe. This is in your this is in your uh, textbook, and it's fairly brief. But I think the important thing here is to understand that um, that we have this sensus divinitatis, and we can uh, justify our belief in God just based on that. But if people ask us a reason why, we should have that. But because a person can't recall, well, I, I just believe it. I just believe God exists. It just makes sense. Then we should say that they're justified. They're rational in believing. They don't say you're irrational because you believe in God. All right. What else do we got here? Proper function. This simply qualifies the warrant by stipulating that um, if proper cognition, you know, the gray matter is working properly, and that your belief is aimed, successfully aimed, at the truth. Okay? And that is it. And that is four minutes left. Any questions? Did I go too fast? Do we need to? Do I need to go back to a previous screen for anybody? And tell me next week if the book make the. I know the authors. Follow that outline for a reason, but I had to. Uh, I had to go. Wait a minute. When I was doing this, wait a minute. There's strengths and weaknesses here. But then I get down a little bit further in the chapter, and well, well, we're talking about strengths and weaknesses again. And so I thought, you know, this makes more sense to me if I go column by column. But if you see the row by row thing, okay. I apologize. We may get a 50-50 take on that. <laughs> but this way you get to see it two ways, and one way will make sense more to some than others. All right? 
We're good? Man, we can let you go early. Are there any... No no goodies left, huh? Chowder. Huh? They're all down here someplace, right? You have some. No, I'm good. All right. I hope I hope I made some sense out of this. Um, I had to really make some sense out of it for myself. Foundationalism I was familiar with and causal theory. Um, but how all this fit together, um, I learned a lot myself. Okay? It's... Uh, it's been a good experience for me, and I hope it's helping you. Okay, close in prayer. Absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> good. Dear God, thank you very much for this day. Thank you for uh, the time that we've been able to spend here. Thank you for Charles and all his preparation and uh, putting together these lessons and uh, willingness to be able to teach us. I uh, thank you for the opportunity that our church offers us to be able to come and. and and learn more. Uh, just help us all to have a safe trip home and a good evening. And now we pray, Amen. Amen.